Adding some more show notes. Don't do it. Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a giant ocean talking cloud, change fatigue, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 13, recorded on April 29th, 2015. Shields up, Captain. Shields up. Deploy, deploy. Your code, that is. Ah, yes. Through your favorite tools, like Visual Studio Online or Subversion. Or how about just code? Can you deploy your code through code? Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny you say that, Scott. Uh, Microsoft Build Conference is going on right now in San Francisco. Everybody there received a, what looked like a pretty nice laptop. It was about $1,200, two-in-one. Uh, I am not one of those people, so I'm a little annoyed, but oh well, I'll deal with that. Um, anyway, so looking at the uh, new tools that Microsoft has put out, uh, Scott Hanselman effectively blow, blew all of our minds as he talked about the Visual Studio Code toolset, um, which is cross-platform, so it installs across Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um what does that really mean? Well, just more on that promise they made at the Connect conference a couple months ago, um, back in New York City in November, that you know they are really pushing whole hog, if you want to use that terminology. Uh, Mark Rackley, I'm sure, would be happy to hear me talking about hogs, but uh, you know, being able to develop on whatever platform you want and utilizing Azure as your backend. Um, if you, I don't know if you've gone and downloaded the Visual Studio Code for OSX yet or for Windows, but it does have a GitHub component to it, so you can go grab your code from your favorite repo and then take that and push it back into the repo for you know whatever deployment scripts you have available uh, through Visual Studio Online to deploy out to Azure. So pretty cool stuff uh, coming soon to a desktop near you, um, only because you have internet slower than a turtle. <laughs> yeah, this one looks kind of fun. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So if you actually go into that package on OSX. It looks like it's built on top of uh, Atom, which is the uh, processor, the kind of uh, lightweight mm, editing suite that GitHub released. So it makes sense that it's pretty well integrated with that. And it plays around kind of in that same space as Sublime Text and Atom with the uh, the palette manager and, and those different pieces and parts that go into it. Uh, I've, I've been catching up on this stuff as I woke up this morning. I actually saw there's a great set of uh, six or seven articles out there on just getting started with this new tooling uh, from John Papa. Uh, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes so everybody can have a uh, good introduction to this, especially if they haven't used tools like Sublime Text or Atom before. Wait, wait, wait. John Papa? Or is that Papa John? No, John Papa. You know, code evangelism, all that stuff. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. It's, it's actually a really great walkthrough. Uh, it takes folks through the uh, command palette and, and kind of working through those different pieces and parts. I'm really looking forward to if this is uh, as promising as it looks right now, uh, being able to ditch the uh, multiple editors that I have kind of on every device because this is going to support 
you know, all the things that I probably need it to do, um, especially on my Mac where it'll do, you know, XML and JavaScript and Markdown and fun things like that. Uh, but then having kind of a familiar cross-platform experience will be nice as well to pull that over to the Windows side of things and, and see how everything goes there. Uh, and then the other interesting thing for this is they released it for uh, Linux as well, right? So people can go out and grab it um, and, you know, get going with their favorite package manager or whatever they want, uh, pull it down, and then start running through and doing things. Um, did you have a chance to actually watch the keynote or were, were you kind of following it on Twitter or catching up with it? Uh, so I had the keynote turned on on another machine and had the volume turned down so that it wouldn't disturb anybody else. Uh, but it was, uh, it was interesting to watch Satya, you know, kind of kick things off and then handed it off to uh, Mr. Redshirt, Scott Guthrie himself, who then handed it off to a couple other people, which included uh, none other than Scott Hanselman. Um, so Scott got up there, did a demonstration of a couple different things, blew our minds with uh, Visual Studio Code, um, as well as uh, just some different app stuff, so to speak. Um, I guess uh, Mark Rosinovich got up and showed off a little bit of the different stuff with like, uh, uh, what is it, the Docker um, component of Windows Server that's out there, that client, so that you can run Windows apps inside of uh, Docker. So that was kind of neat to see. Um, after the keynote, though, unfortunately, I kind of had to, you know, go back to heads down and get back to work, uh, more just meaning that I wasn't actually at my desk for the better part of the day after that. Um, but there's at least like six or seven hours more content uh, that I need to catch up on uh, from Channel 9. So they were live streaming it, but then you could, uh, you know, hit back and they had the different time marks of when the different sessions started. So. There's some definite cool stuff, and I think we'll be covering some of that. But uh, going on right now is uh, Microsoft's overview for IoT, which uh, I wish I could be watching. But, you know, I'm more than happy to spend time with our lovely listeners as well. Ah, excellent. So as we go through and we're talking about these things, if anybody has any questions or they want to look up a resource we're talking about, where could they go and find that? Well, if they're looking for resources from us, that would be none other than our show notes, uh, which you can find over at brewery.fm. Um, we're not a .com, we're not a .org, we're not a .net. We, uh, we're a .fm because we are podcasters. Um, anyway, if you go over to pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery and then the episode number, uh, so in this case, 013, uh, you can find the actual show notes just for this show and all the different goodness uh, with regard to cloud and Legos. Excellent. That's the kind of thing I like to hear. So now that we've had that nice little segue, you, you were talking about uh, IoT a little bit. So uh, they announced Data Lake this morning, correct? Or Data Lake, depending on how you want to pronounce things. Uh, yeah, so they they did pronounce uh, they did pronounce it Data Lake, not Data Lake, but um, they showed that off. They showed off the ability to you know take in petabytes of information. Uh, pretty darn cool, especially if you start looking at some of the use cases with IoT sensors and event hubs and all that jazz. Uh, you know, pushing to kind of that one centralized spot, um, so you can then you know take and do analysis on top of that, whether that be HD Insight or something else. Yeah, so this looks like it's taking that Hadoop as a service to another level, right? Uh, I would say it's, you know, Hadoop as a service and adding in 
uh, more that that storage piece that just really wasn't there that a lot of folks were trying to do on on their own, um, where they were creating data lakes inside of Azure just in a very poor fashion. So now that they've got data lake as a service, um, I think uh, that HD Insight story becomes a lot more compelling. Anything else on that side? So I know they had uh, data warehousing for Azure SQL. That's kind of out and about now as well, right? Uh, yeah, so they, they shared off the data warehouse component. Um, Microsoft had a tool that was actually totally on-premises for uh, parallel data warehousing. They renamed it Analytics Platform System, so APS. Um, it seems like they've taken this and they've put it into a quote-unquote uh, you know, as-a-service. So instead of having to go buy the hardware, put it inside your own data center, wire things up, now you just uh, pay for it up in the cloud, uh, you know, on an as needed basis. So definitely a lot, uh, I guess, you know, for those organizations that are doing all these analytic systems and whatnot, um, the ability to just go spin it up, you know, a couple minutes instead of having to go through a procurement life cycle, uh, definitely handy. Always nice to be able to just swipe your credit card and move on with your day. Or, you know, swipe your credit card, but yeah. Um, and the other kind of interesting announcement they made also in that SQL world um, is with regard to Azure SQL. So one of the things that I know you and I had always uh, kind of chuckled about was we have this uh, this Azure uh, SQL database that we can go store data in and we can do some interesting little things with, but we couldn't do much more than uh, you know try and make it secure. If we wanted to make it secure, we had to do some craziness where we like wrote a stored procedure that did uh, ROT13 on it um, before storing it in the actual uh, row. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see that they're actually putting TDE into, you know, SQL Azure. Um, the other thing that kind of came up was the ability to do full text search inside of SQL Azure. So that was one of those areas again, that was, uh, if you wanted to have full text search, you pretty much were forced to go stand up a VM, install your own license of uh, SQL server or use a license from Azure to be able to do that, uh, you know, component of, be able to pull back information rapidly. Um, now that's just part of SQL Azure, so you're paying for it already, and it'll, it'll be there for you to use. And last, uh, the Elastic Database Pooling. So this one kind of threw me for a loop as to what they were actually trying to show off. Uh, the demonstration wasn't super helpful because it seemed to be more that they were showing uh, the ability to secure data um, within a set of databases and only show you like the secure trimmed uh, information that you should be able to see, which personally to me, I would think that would be more on the, the actual app that you'd be writing to only pull back information that you should be able to see. But um, the concept of being able to have all these different databases together, working together, I think was more what they were going for. Maybe you've got uh, better insight on, on that than I do. Well, I, I think that feature that you were talking about with the masking, that's the uh, transparent data masking, right? Which was a capability that was released last month, maybe. Uh, I haven't had too much time to read up on the uh, the actual elastic pooling. Um, I wonder if this comes into that kind of hyperscale capability that they've had in SQL Azure for a while now to be able to uh, switch between pools and things like that. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, the nice thing is the way they've kind of re-architected that backend and brought things up to the V12 engine. Uh, like you said, this brings us 
things like TDE and full text search because we're getting better compatibility with uh, the on-premises release of SQL Server. And then they can also take advantage of that kind of hyperscale that they have in the cloud side of things, right? So database pooling and being able to um, ha having everything in a true multi-tenant environment on the back end and Microsoft being able to manage it for that that for us. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it looks like the pooling is actually customers are going to be able to uh, basically pay for an aggregate of a bunch of databases put together instead of saying, okay, I've got this database, this database, this database, and have them all be SQL have them all be separate. So now we get a better economy of scale around those things, right? And then some of these features like the transparent data masking or, uh, you, you know, that data masking uh, kind of security through obscurity feature uh, is, you know, something that's unique to that release in the cloud. So it, it, it brings that whole story together around, um, let's have uh data encrypted uh, at rest, let's have it encrypted while it's in motion or in flight. Um, and then let's also have application level controls uh, to be able to mix and match what we need to uh, make our applications work the way that they need to to meet our business requirements or build requirements, you know, whatever we have going on there. Yeah, and I think uh, kind of like you mentioned, though, um, the ability to use the hyperscale capabilities of Azure um, to be able to provide this service is pretty big. Um, I know at least in some of the organizations that I've worked with in the past, it always seemed like, you know, they would start to get to this uh, critical mass where they'd be producing solutions that were awesome, but they were also starting to encroach on that, uh, that point where they were going, huh, um, things are starting to slow down. And while in the past we were able to have five or six different SQL instances, uh, served up and working for different organizations to consume from, um, we're starting to hit this like roadblock of hardware. And so the ability to just, you know, keep on consuming on Azure's cloud is something that's, at least to me, is, you know, being able to point them and say, hey, you don't need to keep buying kit. You don't need to keep trying to optimize things. And, you know, your, your SQL DBA, uh, let them keep the last bits of hair that he's got. Uh, just teach him to use Azure and let them... Uh, use the hyperscale capability to be able to use it. But the other stuff you mentioned, uh, the data masking, you're definitely right. That's stuff that was already out there. And I think it was just uh, the fact that they had people on stage that they wanted to go ahead and show that off as well and just kind of work it in as, you know, one of the additional little things that uh, you can do. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to see these things come out. Uh, I think the other thing that they announced, just looking through some of the blogs and things like that, is real-time encryption. Uh, for logs as well, right? So now this is kind of completing that security story as well. So as developers are building out solutions on top of these SaaS components of Azure, so if I'm building some type of multi-tenant application that I'm going to release myself, uh, I'm actually getting security controls uh, from the platform that you know I can automatically pass on that uh, th that trust to whoever my clientele is, right? And give everybody the, the warm fuzzies about uh, what's being built, how it's being stored, how it's being accessed, and who has access to it. Yeah, which, like you said, is uh, something that is incredibly helpful to have on as uh, part of your system operating. Sweet. So let's see. So we've got SQL stuff. We've got some Visual Studio stuff. Did they talk about Office 365 at all? 
They talked about it very minimally, um, but it was kind of humorous because they showed off a demonstration uh, of an application that was cross-platform um, integrated with Office. So in the past, we had uh, you know Office apps or apps for Office. Um, I don't. It seems like this is more of like a an add-on for Office that they're kind of going down the path of instead of necessarily an app. Um, so I'm pretty certain we'll probably hear more about this next week. I think they were just kind of trying to whet people's uh, appetite for it, but it seemed like they had uh, you know add-ins that you could drop into uh, your different Office applications, whether it be Excel, Word, PowerPoint, Access. Um, although I doubt Access would actually be able to work with these. Uh, but basically, they're HTML5 JavaScript applications that you could insert into your application to then read data off of and work with your information back on Office 365. So kind of taking the apps for Office uh, to the next level, I guess you could say. Um, the little application they showed off, though, uh, I guess it was Rob Lefferts, I think that's his name. Uh, he was demonstrating something that pulled back uh, you know, email information and social information um, and the first, it had four names associated with it, which included uh, none other than Chris Johnson and Jeremy Thake. Um, apparently, Jeremy Thake in his business profile does not actually have an image associated with himself. So I thought it was kind of funny because it had, uh, you know, a couple of the folks so like Chris Johnson. You saw this picture that he uses on pretty much all social media and then Jeremy Thake. And it was just a little silhouette uh, image. So that was kind of funny for them to be up in front of everybody inside build. Um but, uh, yeah, we gave him a little bit of crap on that on Twitter. Um, but that stuff is truly cross-platform. So if it's, uh, you know, an app that you want to be able to get this uh, connected and wired up, you know, to use on the desktop, uh, it works there. But it also works inside of, like, an iPad, which they had on stage as well, which was pretty crazy that they're getting more and more into that instead of, uh, you know, just sticking with their guns on the windows platform. So, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, the, the nomenclature is changing on us, right? In, in the past we've had, uh, apps and now, now we have add-ins and add-ins probably makes a bit more sense than apps because we tend to think in, in the app world of things being kind of self-contained and, uh, individualized, right? I'm going to go to this app to do this and this app to do this versus I'm going to go to Outlook and Outlook is going to have a bunch of add-ins or additional functionality uh, that are going to bring things along with it. So it, it's going to be nice to see that. Maybe that carries down into the rest of the platforms as well, hopefully. You know, it'd be nice if everything in SharePoint wasn't an app, like every list and library, things like that. Uh, you know, this goes along with some of the messaging around. We don't talk so much about uh, workloads in, in kind of the sales process these days. We talk about experiences, right? Um, Amazon's doing the same thing. They don't talk about uh, workloads anymore. They, they really talk about journeys. Uh, so everybody has their different, uh, you know, fancier way to to describe all these bits and pieces of functionality that are coming out. Uh, one of the other nice things that seemed pretty neat about this uh, add-in component was they announced uh, the unified endpoints for Office 365 as well, right? So when everybody's building these applications, uh, they kind of have one place to go to for all of these add-ins that they build. 
and it rules everything. So not only do you get cross-platform uh, add-ins or, or the ability to build these solutions and have them automatically be cross-platform, uh, but you also don't have to change a bunch of connection endpoints and things along the way. All your tooling uh, stays the same end-to-end, -end, which is uh, going to be really nice for a lot of developers, I'd imagine. Uh, I'm totally with you on that. I think during the demonstration that they got slammed with requests because you can see the URLs up there on the screen. Um, so I know for myself, I was typing away, you know, the HTTPS uh, colon whack whack uh, graph explorer two dot azure websites dot net. And, you know, it uh, had a login page. So I signed in It asked me, hey, do you want to, you know, give your firstborn child and all the rights and privileges to your house and whatnot? to us so that you can see this endpoint. I said, sure, why not? And then it gave me a 500 error. And I was like, oh, seriously? Um, but uh, it started working a couple minutes after that. So I'm guessing that uh, I caught it when it was scaling up because all the traffic that was hitting it. So kind of neat that they're actually using Azure websites to host that endpoint as well for us all to get to. Yeah, so this is the, is, is this an updated graph explorer? Or is it, I, so they've, they've kind of had multiple revisions of this going through back through time, right? So this is just reading out of the latest and greatest API set. Um, so this is more, so I think, uh, hmm, you know, that's a good question. This is more that they had uh, some graph API, but I think it was spread out across a couple different endpoints. So like you said, this is the endpoint of all endpoints um, for grabbing all your information, uh, in particular information that you might have that, uh, you were trying to get from like Delve. Looks fun. Did they have any announcements around Delve? Uh, outside of that, it was pretty sparse from an office perspective. Uh, to be honest, it wasn't anything really more than that. Um, you know, it was just kind of us chortling, I guess, uh, that the uh, the new way of doing apps is similar to the way that we were doing 10 years ago, except that we didn't have HTML5 and CSS version 3 or jQuery and JavaScript at the same level they're at today. So, oh well. How about Windows? Did they talk about that at all? Um, so Windows 10, uh, they, yeah, it was off the hook. They have gone through and done uh, several iterations of fixes and refinements to uh, things like HoloLens, but uh, some of the stuff, and I don't think I necessarily put this in the show notes. We'll have to go back and grab this from Twitter and put it in. Um, but they showed off what they call Continuum. Um, I, you know, thought to myself, Continuum, huh? That sounds a lot like continuity. And so, if you're a OSX person running uh, Yosemite and you've got iOS version eight on your iOS device, whether it be an iPhone or an iPad. Uh, then you're familiar with, you know, having your device and putzing around in Safari or some other continuity-enabled uh, app that knows how to do quote-unquote handoff, um, where, you know, you're browsing a page on your iPhone and then you see a little uh, icon pop up inside of uh, your OSX interface and you go, oh, well, I want to transfer that over to OSX and pop open the web page. And so... That's how it started off. And I was kind of sitting there going, okay, neat. Uh, OSX already has this. Great. You're on parity with OSX. And then they started taking things to the next level. And they basically were like, so you've got your Windows phone. Um, you know, usually you might uh, take your Windows phone and then, uh, you know, after you've done the continu uh, 
continue in peace, you transfer devices. But instead, uh, we're just going to go ahead and use the profile you have for your Bluetooth keyboard and Bluetooth mouse, and we're just going to project your screen from your Windows phone up onto a big monitor um, that way. And they basically showed off some tech uh, with Windows Phone to use it as a basically like a PC uh, instead of having to switch over to a PC. So uh, that was pretty crazy, the uh, continuum piece. There's a video on YouTube. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, some of the other things they showed off was more with regard to uh, the App Store. So they made mention of basically instead of, you know, just having payment gone through with uh, your Windows app credit card. So, you know, you've got the Windows Store, you've got a credit card associated with your uh, your live ID. Um, instead of going through that, actually using carrier billing. So in much the same way that we used to have like uh, feature phones and we could go download an app uh, or a ringtone or something like that. And they would show up on our bill and our parents would smack us over the head and they'd say, hey, why are you buying things off your phone? Um, apparently, they're going to enable that so that mobile devices, Windows devices can go uh, just have payments completely settled straight through your carrier instead of having to go back through the Windows Store. So uh, they made that announcement. They also made an announcement around Windows Store of running um, essentially Android code. Uh, or iOS code uh, inside of a Windows Phone device. Um, it sounded like it was more Android code, but I saw a couple different uh, instances out on the interwebs that said iOS as well. So I'm kind of scratching my head off head on that one if they were just trying to get to market real early and you know get some uh, optics on their uh, different articles or if it was actually legit. Um, in this case, though, they showed off uh, an Android app running in the background. Um, consuming uh, the Windows Phone, and it was basically they're building a Android subsystem into Windows 10 for the phone to be able to run Android apps on Windows devices, which I thought was pretty ridiculous. Um, yeah, what the heck? Uh, in addition to that, though, they went in also in the Windows Store and showed off uh, the ability to run Win32 and .NET apps from the Windows Store. So in the past. Um, you and I had looked at, you know, some of the apps that were being built out there, but they had to be put into that more universal app container type, um, to be able to be run on an actual, you know, Windows 10 device as a modern app. Um, what they essentially went back and are retooling is the ability to use app V. So it's a technology that Microsoft came back up with a couple of years ago to be able to stream applications down to the desktop. Um, and install them, but have them basically compartmentalized in like a sandbox. So uh, Office 365, if you download uh, Office 365 Pro Plus from the you know website, from the portal, uh, you're effectively using this technology, um, I think, pretty certain. Um, but yeah, so the ability to run Win32 and .NET app uh, applications from the Windows Store. So... Uh, they showed off, I believe it was Photoshop being installed through AppV, which to me is pretty wild because in the past that was something that always required, you know, <clears throat> access to the machine, um, access to the file system had to be installed that way. It couldn't be installed through like an app model. 
so they're they're doing some stuff to make that a possibility now. And apparently Adobe will be coming out with, uh, I think it was like Photoshop Lightroom or Photoshop Essentials and another Photoshop tool uh, sometime this fall or later this summer um, that we're using AppV to be able to make that possible. So that opens up the door to pretty much anything you could think of uh, being installed on the Windows desktop as a universal app using AppV through Windows Store. Crazy. Crazy, I tell you. Yeah, that's kind of nice, especially when you combine it with uh, some of the, the VDI technologies, right, and remote app and some of the other things. So if you look at the ability to deliver applications in that manner and push things around, it becomes really powerful kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Photoshop's nice, but I know I've, I've worked for a lot of organizations. Like I used to work for a mining company uh, and some of the modeling software that we would push around to engineers for designing new pieces and parts for, uh, for our factories, uh, you know, when you're running AutoCAD and things like that, or if you're doing uh, any kind of uh, GIS mapping, the, you know, those applications tend to be pretty heavy and require some beefy systems. So having something like that around uh, is pretty nice and a, a compelling use of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not too sold on the, uh, the use case you had for Continuum of plugging your Windows phone into your uh, desktop. That seems like kind of dying breed kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting to see where they invest in that platform uh, because it tends to be about um, not so much uh, flagship devices, but cheaper kind of things, right? If you look at where the Lumias are successful, they're, they're successful in emerging markets and, you know, they have all like the 530s and the 630s and things like that, these really low-end devices uh, that I necessarily, you know, I'm probably not the target market for being able to plug that into a computer into a monitor and use it as my daily driver. Uh, but the people that are buying a $30 phone, they're probably not in that market either. So it, it would be nice to see some, uh, maybe some flagship Windows phone devices come back since they haven't had anything in quite a while. Um, and maybe that'll start to ramp up now that we've got Windows Phone 10 coming along a little bit better. I don't know uh, what devices that they're necessarily gonna target this for, but I agree that uh, <clears throat> if it's the cheaper stuff, um, that they give away for like five bucks, uh, that's probably not going to be able to provide the desktop, you know, that an end user wants. So, uh, there's an interesting article out on the verge that has more information about it for anybody that's curious. Uh, but it's definitely one of those things where at least, you know, from a holy crap perspective, it's, uh, it's a very interesting use case, especially, you know, just, I think they were more looking at it or targeting it at folks that don't necessarily want to buy a PC. They just want to have a phone. Um, so having, you know, a desktop or a, a workstation, so to speak, where they basically drop their phone down, they've got a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor, uh, that that would make more sense for that quote unquote mobile workforce. But I agree with you that uh, for the Dan Usher, Scott Hoags of the world, um, probably not quite going to cut it. Um, I, I'd really be interested in seeing if anybody tried to, uh, you know, load up Visual Studio on their phone in some fashion to be able to use Continuum. Yeah, you just go ahead and install Visual Studio Code. It deploys without issue, I'm sure. Especially on, you know, a Dell Venue 8 Pro. Oh my gosh, don't even get me started on that thing. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's, it's had some issues. I went to... 
booted up yesterday. I, I, I figured with builds coming up, maybe we'd have some new things coming down in the fast ring. Um, so typically when I'm not using it, I keep it powered down because the battery isn't great on it. And it's nice to be able to spin it up and be able to use it for at least an hour because it's only got that micro USB port and, you know, uh, charging it takes a while. It's got like a really slow trickle charger to it. So I turned it on and it's stuck in a BitLocker uh, recovery loop. And the way that the state that Windows 10 is in right now, when you get to the BitLocker recovery screen and you tap into the text box to type in your recovery key, it would be really nice if I could actually type it in. So I have my recovery key and I can work around this bug, except for the fact that there's no software keyboard yet in that place. So I can click the buttons on the screen, like I can click the button that says skip this drive, and that works great. It skips the primary drive and it reboots the PC and then it gets stuck in the uh, recovery loop again. So just because of the way this device is set up, um, it only has the one port on it and it's that micro USB port which is used for uh, not only charging the device, but also for connectivity. So I was kind of complaining about this on Twitter last night and you know, a couple of folks uh, like Todd Clint said, just go out and get an OTG cable, uh, which would be nice, except for the fact that I'm in Australia and it seems that requiring uh, or acquiring technology like that can be a little weird sometimes. So uh, I hopped onto a couple of the sites for Officeworks and JB Hi-Fi and things like that. I said, okay, let's see what I can find for OTG cables. Um, and, you know, you start looking and it's like, ah, $12, $15. And, oh, come on, for just this little cable that, you know, you can pick up for Amazon for like $3 or whatever. So uh, I did find a store that had one for like 4 bucks. Of course, that meant I had to order it online. Uh, so maybe that'll be shipped here within, I don't know, hopefully the next week or so. Uh, and then I'm going to have to go into all my America boxes and try and find a USB keyboard someplace uh, so that I can plug this thing in and just get past BitLocker recovery. And I really, really hope that this new build that they released today uh, at the build conference is going to fix this issue. Uh, because the only reason it happened was uh, there's a bug where uh, when you're on uh, that build, the, the 10061, and you shut your machine down, it's actually not shut down. It's still doing, it's still draining power. So I would have been okay. I wouldn't have been bit by this if I left my tablet plugged in, uh, you know, 7 by 24 But uh, unfortunately, that's not a valid use case for a tablet. So just one of those uh, weird bugs and, and, you know, kind of the pain of being a uh, an insider for the Windows 10 build process right now. Uh, so like I said, I'm going to hopefully get that cable and work through it and see what I can make happen. But at least I'll have an OTG cable now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I can use that for absolutely nothing other than this one thing. So Scott, if they wanted to read more about your experiences, where where should they go to find out more about that? Oh, I was complaining on my blog on psconfig, and uh, I had some links up there to uh, a couple of uh, Microsoft Insider forums uh, where some other people were, interestingly enough, experiencing this same exact problem on this same exact device. 
Uh, but those people are all pretty lucky. They already had OTG cables and USB keyboards. They weren't a poor, unfortunate soul like me. Gotcha. And like you mentioned, uh, that <clears throat> Windows 10, uh, I guess, uh, is it tech preview or is it just a preview at this point? Uh, I believe it's still a tech preview. Okay. So, yeah, the Windows uh, 10, quote-unquote, insider program, uh, they do have that uh, update you can go download from uh, Microsoft, and that will pull you up to build version 174. So one zero zero seven four. So it's uh, sounds like what what was it one zero zero six one came out last Wednesday. So they've incremented yet again seven days later with yet another build with more enhancements and improvements. And for all the times they showed Spartan on stage today, uh, I think it only crashed once, and it was the very first time during a demo. <laughs> Spartan. Is Spartan still around? I, th I thought they were changing the name of it. Uh, so, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that. Um, they did update the name and the logo. Um, so it's no longer uh, Spartan. It is now, quote-unquote, Edge. Um, so Microsoft decided, hey, we're going to keep the big blue E, which was Explorer. Um, we're going to change the icon just a little bit. We're going to rename Spartan to Edge because, you know, being on the bleeding edge of technology... Um, it did look pretty, uh, pretty nifty, uh, what they showed. So it did look like they had, uh, realized, Hey, we should uh, probably get this looking nicer before build. Um, if you had downloaded any of the previous builds, I think it was, uh, one zero zero five, four and on, or maybe it was four, one and on, um, it had a version in there, but like, uh, like I said, it tended to crash pretty regularly. Um, so yeah, uh, it's now the edge. And of course, someone jokingly posted on Twitter, well, now, now that it's the edge, does it come with, you know, a free album? And so I was tempted to reply back and say, yes, and it's preloaded on your Windows 10 device. Um, but I uh, figured that would be in bad taste. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you want me to ruin that logo for you, just imagine that it's Sonic the Hedgehog. And now you'll never be able to unsee it. Thanks, man. Just what I needed. Yep. Well, you know, it'll be speedy. Just think about running around the internet, collecting rings and uh, jumping on top of weird robots, and you'll be fine. Excellent. Um, they also did mention something else kind of on the Windows side that I think you and I mentioned maybe a month ago or started talking about a, about a month ago, um, but the notion of Windows as a service. And Satya mentioned it a couple times. He didn't go into too much detail about it. But just uh, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, okay, you've talked about it a couple times now. What are you really trying to talk about? What are you really starting to drive home? So I'm, I'm curious if we're going to start seeing things down the road about, you know, uh, oh, you want to run Windows? Okay, that'll be, you know, $2 a month. But I, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to go down that drastic of a service or if it's going to be something else that they kind of come out with down the road. So that, that, that they didn't actually come up with what that scheme is going to look like. All we know is that Windows as a service is coming. Uh, you know, it, it's more just that they mentioned it a couple times today. Um, the idea of Windows as a service, they didn't really go into any more detail than that. You know, I rely on you for this information, Dan. You've, you've really got to buckle down and um, watch some more of these keynotes and things. All right. On it. Tell your boss you need some time off. Time off for good behavior? Right. Um, so, <laughs> uh, 
there's a ton of content out there, like I said, uh, the build conference um, for Windows in particular. So if you get a chance, uh, that'll probably float your boat. Um, the HoloLens stuff, uh, I'm fairly jealous of anybody that's out there. They had, they said they had brought uh, a couple hundred units with them um, to allow people to experience and see what it was like to start giving them ideas instead of just uh, saying, yeah, it's a thing and it's coming. Um, they did have, you know, a substantial number of units for folks to schedule a time. Uh, I think I even saw Dan Holm mention that he was uh, scheduled a time to go uh, try out the HoloLens sometime today. So I'd be curious what he's going to post up over on IT Unity or if he's going to post something on his blog or something like that. But apparently uh, they are, you know, starting to get these things more and more refined. And it, it blows my mind, I think, mostly because if you look at the uh, Oculus Rift, that thing is a beast. And it is not something that you just kind of casually wear and walk around with. It's something that you have to put on and uh, pretty much ready yourself for being able to wear. Um, it's not, you know, something that you can easily carry either. You probably get pretty tired of wearing it around your head. Um, whereas it looked like, and maybe this is just, you know, everything smoke and mirrors up on the stage at this point, but it looked like, uh, the HoloLens itself was fairly lightweight. Um, they mentioned it was running windows 10 IOT core. So again, uh, they talked about raspberry Pi um, two being able to run windows IOT core. And I'm sitting here waiting for a download link from Microsoft to be able to go pull that down to run it on my raspberry Pi two, because that is still not out, still not out there to download, unfortunately. Well, uh, you know, it sounds like it's getting to the point where uh, the internal builds are coming along far enough to demonstrate these things. So hopefully we'll see, you know, some fun goodies coming down the pipe for you soon enough. Hope so. Uh, definitely be nice. Um, what else do we have? Uh, so do we want to talk about Azure other stuff? Azure other stuff. Well, they had some announcements, right? Uh, just around uh, Azure in general. Uh, so I know I, I saw this morning uh, on the uh, GitHub repo that uh, version 0 0.9.0 of the Azure PowerShell SDK was released. So, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past, but I can't stress it enough. If people are really interested in these things, uh, they should really go star and watch some of these repos to see what's coming down the pipe uh, because they've been working frantically on a lot of the ARM functionality, the Azure Resource Manager functionality. And if you read the release notes for this release as it came out, you know, all of a sudden it sounds like, oh, we have all this great new stuff on ARM and everything else. It's like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, but they've been working on it for a while. So, uh, you know, it's it's nice to see those things catch up and, and keep up. Uh, I saw they also had some announcements around the preview portal uh, earlier in the week leading up to build. Um, and that had a pretty big focus on ARM as well and kind of what the UI and display components of that are going to look like in the portal and being able to manage resource groups and even across subscriptions. Uh, at some point, it sounds like we're finally going to get the functionality to uh, move uh, objects between resource containers. So that'll be really nice because I know I have a bunch of uh, legacy things in my subscriptions that were built before ARM, and now they end up in just these default ARM containers, it'd be nice to actually push them over to the 
applications where they need to live without ripping them down and, and rebuilding them, all those kind of fun things. Um, you know, ARM, ARM's pretty interesting. I think we've talked about this in the past too, that uh, it, it's, it's out there and uh, you're using it pretty much by default. Even if you go into the old portal and create a resource, you know, there's nothing surface there to say, hey, what's the resource group this lives in, but it ends up in a default resource group. Uh, so having some of this tooling to push and move things around uh, gets us closer to that point where uh, we can start to leverage the new portal a little bit more because it's nicer. It has some of the uh, kind of service monitoring and diagnostics things that we, we'd want to be able to see real time. Um, and the management experience can be a little bit richer depending on what you're trying to do. Uh, so having the ability to go in there and do these things through that portal and then also through um, through things like the PowerShell SDK uh, just opens up that uh, kind of world of possibilities for uh, allowing us to have kind of a, a more rigorous control set around what's actually going on in our subscriptions. Uh, Mark Brasinovich has a talk that he did right after the keynote, um, basically on ARM. So if you want to get kind of the breakdown from him, it's pretty darn snazzy, but um, like you mentioned, you know, the ARM stuff came out a while ago, generally available, but it was pretty limited. So if we went into PowerShell and we were working, um, we would do that, uh, the change mode um, to use Azure Resource Manager. And it was fairly limited as to what you could do. But if you go out now, um, that, uh, that PowerShell update 0.9, uh, if you go over to the web PI or something like that, you will see, especially if you go over to GitHub, all the added functionality, it is a boatload. Um, for me, I went out and I said, okay, so Rusinovich is doing this talk and I popped open Visual Studio to kind of follow along. And he was like, yeah, you can do this inside Visual Studio where you uh, create a resource group and you can add in, you know, different uh, components that we have on here, pre-built, yada, yada, yada. I went, huh, that's weird. I've got the latest and greatest, but I don't see what he's showing. Huh. So I went and uh, hit up, you know, azure.microsoft.com uh, forward slash download and said, well, let's see what WebPI pulls back down. And all of a sudden WebPI said, hey, SDK 2.6 for .NET is out there. And I said, huh, okay, let's grab that. And it was only about half a gig, which, you know, for you would probably take two years to download. But um, after I grabbed that, I went down the path and kind of looked to see everything else it installed. And sure enough, one of the items in there was PowerShell version uh, 0.9. Uh, at that point in time, if you went out to the GitHub repo, it was kind of funny because it didn't show 0.9 as being the active version. So at least out on Twitter, I hit up uh, Trevor, Trevor Sullivan, I think his name is, PCGeek86, and said, hey, dude, uh, you know, is 0.8.16 still the current version or am I seeing something different? And he said, yep, that's it. And I said, ah, that's strange. Um, and I uh, called him up and talked to him real quick. And then sure enough, he went and checked. And by the point that we had had our conversation, uh, the GitHub repo had actually published the page saying, hey, 0.9 is out there. So that was a little strange to me to see that GitHub was actually behind the web PI for all this stuff. But uh, if you get a chance, I definitely do recommend going and grabbing the Visual Studio.net um, component, the SDK 2.6 for Azure. The added functionality in there for Azure Resource Manager is phenomenal. So very, very cool stuff. Yeah, who uses Visual Studio, though? Well, I mean, now that the Visual Studio PowerShell tools are out there and have been updated, I think even you, Scott Hogue, would want to go play with 
uh, Visual Studio. Uh, again, this is another case. So those PowerShell tools, it's not that they're out there. They've been out there for months and months and months now. Um, this is, you know, if people were following this stuff on GitHub, they would have been using it since at least the February dog food releases were, were pretty stable. Uh, it, it is nice. And uh, something like Posh Tools, uh, you, you know, uh, that repo gets a ton of activity if you go in and look at the issues and uh, kind of the cadence that they're releasing fixes for that thing. It's, it's crazy. It's almost one that you can't really watch because the number of emails that come from GitHub about it are just insane. So what you're telling me is you're actually potentially going to start going and using Visual Studio for your Bash shell scripts. Cool. Uh, not for my Bash, no. Well, maybe. I don't know. Right? We can do that with code now or Atom or some other processor. Oh, there you go. Typing again. I know. Real-time follow-up. Sorry. Um, as we were talking, I actually got an email from Azure saying, updated pricing. So <laughs> the pricing battle is on again. Oh, what do you mean on again? Uh, just Explain yourself. Just so, uh, you know, every single time we uh, have a conference, whether it be Ignite, whether it be Build, whether AWS has their reInvent conference, whether Google has Google I.O., uh, it always seems that one of the companies will start lowering their prices just slightly. So, you know, two cents per hour off on uh, compute or on storage or on uh, network throughput or something. Um, and all of a sudden, within like five days, we'll see uh, the two competitors go, oh, we, we offer that service too. Um, we're going to have to drop our pricing. Um, so it's kind of, it's one of those things where we start to see whenever there's a big conference, there's also tends to be some sort of price drop, uh, somewhere along the, lo along the road, uh, whether it be, you know, Azure going in and dropping compute price, um, or AWS going and dropping storage price or Google doing something. Um, you know, we start to see these different, uh, price fluctuations occurring around these conferences. So it's, Kind of one of those funnier just uh, side effects that we, we tend to see. Yeah, I, you know, it's kind of that commodity space, right? So a lot of those core services, uh, you know, storage and compute and networking and things like that, they can get cheaper over time. And that's just a uh, piece of the platform. So Microsoft really doesn't uh, tout their price drops as much as a company like Amazon does. Um, but if you go to any Amazon conference, they will be very happy to tell you that they have dropped the price of their services over 40 times uh, since the platform was released. So uh, they like to push those kind of statistics. Um, it, it, it's, it's always interesting to see it. I know that uh, one of the things I was really interested in after sitting through the AWS summits last week, um, they made a big point to uh, push about um, kind of their year-over-year -year growth and how they see that growth is bigger than all of their other platforms. So playing around in kind of the Azure space, one of the interesting statistics they had to me was uh, they talk about how uh, AWS as a platform has uh, had 104% year-over-year growth last year. And then they looked at a company like Microsoft and they said, uh, uh, this was for uh, revenue, revenue growth. Um, and then they looked at a company like Microsoft and they said, well, Microsoft as a whole only had 8% uh, revenue growth. And it was, it was like, well, you can't look at Microsoft as a whole. You guys are just looking at 
AWS, so you should be looking at just Microsoft's cloud components. And then AWS uh, came out earlier this week, and uh, or Amazon rather, and they've decided to actually uh, release the numbers monetarily behind uh, what the revenue and spend is and what they're putting into uh, their kind of cloud platform and what they have going on. So turns out that's a $5 billion business. And it, it was interesting, the New York Times had an article and it said, here you go, uh, you know, AWS is a $5 billion business and it's, you know, the, the biggest uh, one that's out there right now. And then at the end of the article, they were talking about Microsoft and they said, and Microsoft's cloud services for everything. So Office 365 and Azure and CRM and kind of all their cloud-based components, those run at about a $6 billion run rate. And you go, well, gee, that sounds like six is bigger than five. So maybe Microsoft is actually uh, doing a little bit better than people think. Um, and, you know, the point of the article was, well, you know, they're, they're different things because when Microsoft is talking about um, their platforms, they're including all these other things, Office 365 and other things outside of Azure. Uh, I'm not so sure. I kind of make the argument that Amazon is going down the platform route, uh, especially lately. Uh, they're releasing more and more software as a service components every day. Uh, so I look at something like AWS, which now has uh, WorkMail and uh, we have WorkSpaces. Uh, they have WorkDocs, like the old Zocalo stuff. So they really do have competes for things that exist in Office 365. So I think it'd be really interesting as businesses start to look at these, um, what they actually want to spend along the way. Uh, like you said, price drops kind of tend to come and go, uh, but it's really going to become what are the underlying platforms behind all this stuff. Um, I, I just thought that was a, a kind of interesting thing because they made such a big point about how big their revenue was at their conferences last week and how much bigger they were than Microsoft or anybody else. Uh, and I think that gap is going to close because at some point, really, you've got to start to compare apples to apples and, uh, or, you know, uh, instead of, you know, Amazon's to, to Azure's and things like that. You mean bananas to battleships? Bananas to battleships. Yes, that's the one. Yep, yep. They both float sometimes. Um <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I, I do find that kind of comical. Like you mentioned, though, that they were kind of looking at the uh, <clears throat> the apples versus oranges view of things, where you know we're measuring one business unit, uh, or really in this case, the entire business against the entire business, instead of the actual business unit within Azure or within Microsoft that is Azure. So. Yeah, um, you, you know, it's it's not so much about being a, a fanboy or anything for me, but I know when we sit down and we talk to uh, new customers and potential clients and things like that, it's a big question about uh, which way should I go? Should I go to Amazon or should I go to Microsoft? And it's not so much about um, should you necessarily go to one platform over the other? You're, you're really going to pick the one that aligns to your business and uh, your needs the best, right? If you're pure IaaS and high throughput, and a bunch of other things, you know, off the cuff, you might be able to say, well, hey, let's go to Amazon because they're they're a little bit richer and more mature in this space. Um, but, you know, if you're a custom dev shop and you're fully invested in Microsoft, it might make sense to really sit down and take a look and say, well, hey, what does Azure App Services do for us? Or uh, let's start to actually compare the offerings. So if I'm looking at uh, microservices or something like that, 
uh, you know, where can I build that out easier on, on each platform? Is that something that I can do in AWS with Lambda? Or is that something I should be doing with the service fabric over in Azure? Um, so as these platforms start to uh, really uh, align a little bit better, you're going to have to start looking at kind of the underlying technologies that drive uh, a lot of your bits and pieces of your business. Uh, you know, I find it, like I said, hugely interesting uh, to go out and have those conversations and uh, sit down and figure, try and figure out what's going to be the best uh, tool for an organization to kind of uh, move forward and invest in. Typically, what it comes down to for me is more just organizations. They they look at both, and at least uh, six months ago, a year ago, uh, if they said, "Hey, we really want to do something that is more, you know, infrastructure related," then if they had really, you know, high IOPS related requirements, I probably would uh, tell them, "Hey, AWS might be your better bet right now." Um, whereas now, you know, with Azure actually having uh, premium storage and having uh, these Godzilla machines, uh, that might be a little bit different. Whereas if they turned around a year ago and they said, hey, we really want to be able to do uh, some of these different uh, app services related things, um, unless they really wanted to get in and start doing Beanstalk stuff. Um, I probably would, you know, kind of scratch my head and say, well, you might you might really want to kind of go down the path of. Uh, using Azure. So, uh, you know, now we we have uh, parity starting to come in place with both services, but uh, it's interesting to kind of see the two of them uh, really just, uh, you know, having to figure out what, uh, what makes sense for my organization. And, you know, I think from the developer perspective, Azure still wins. Um, and I think probably from the, the grand scale uh, infrastructure side of things, uh, AWS may be the better bet, at least for the time being. Um, but that's, you know, like you said, it depends on what the requirements are. It's not a, it's not a one-for-one offering, really. Yeah, yeah, fun, fun stuff. But uh, yeah, that was a fun tangent. Should we get back to? Ooh, I don't even know what to get back to. I kind of lost my place. So uh, a couple things. I figure I'll go ahead and just uh, kind of throw them out there. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about build. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the other things with Azure. Um, something, two things on the Azure front that I wanted to make sure we talked about before we kind of hopped on to something else um, more Apple related. Uh, but apparently in the Microsoft learning world, they took the courseware for the 70-532 exam and they open sourced it. So if you were... Uh, someone that was going down the path of studying to get one of the Azure certifications. I believe that's more the uh, developer-focused Azure certification, so developing uh, applications on Azure, I believe is the name of it, but I'm not positive. Um, so that you know covers websites, that covers IaaS to a you know an extent, and it covers cloud services and whatnot. Um, they went down the path and they said, you know what? We've just have so many changes happening on such a frequent basis. Uh, let's open this up. Let's let's open source this. Um, so if you go out to GitHub and the Microsoft Learning account, uh, you can find the 70-532 courseware. Um, you can download it to your heart's desire. You can play with it, use it for teaching maybe. Uh, you can use it for self-study if you don't feel like going and actually taking the class itself. Um, 
so it's all out there. Uh, if you find issues with it because, you know, websites are now web apps, uh, you can put a pull request in and you can actually go take the page, uh, update it to what the appropriate uh, nomenclature should be now with all these different changes and, you know, push it back out there and everybody else kind of gets the benefit of, of it. But uh, I'm, I'm curious if this is something new that they're going to be doing or if this is just kind of a, you know, one-off tangent, hey, let's see how it works. Yeah, so that's the 7532 study kit. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I think it's the actual the course material that they use for mock, I think is what it actually is. So I, I, I'm just looking through the repos, and there's one out there from uh, MS uh, PFE, so the Premier Field Engineers, uh, and there's a couple of forks of that one. Uh, no, I, I didn't know. No, this is the Developing Microsoft Azure Solutions um, it's, uh, the github.com forward slash Microsoft learning is where it's at. Interesting. They got to work on their SEO. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's, it got released seven days ago. So that tells you just how new and how different this is for them. Um, it's not something that, uh, I was expecting to see. Fun times. Just another repo to watch. You know it. Um, the other thing that, uh, recently popped up was Microsoft released yet another Azure Essentials. Um, on Azure Automation. So this is a free ebook they've got out there. Uh, you can snag it from, uh, looks like, um, MVA. So that place that seems like it uh, continues to get more and more uh, information that's actually valuable instead of just videos that uh, weren't all that worthwhile um, from five years ago. Uh, it looks like they've uh, started putting more books out there that are helpful to us. So that is one of them. If you want to go out there and learn more about how to use Azure Automation, the workflow components, and all that jazz, it's out there as a free ebook. Uh, share it with your friends and neighbors. We, Scott, I don't know if you want to you want to hop into some of the other breaking tech news. Uh, what else is breaking tech news? I don't. You got to remember, it's still early in the morning for me, so. Uh, your version of breaking tech news and mine are usually a little bit different because my news really doesn't break until after coffee. Or when you pick up, uh, like, uh, you know, Dell Venue Pro and it breaks in your hand. Um, no, so I had thrown this in the show notes and I know it looks like it may have gotten removed or moved or something like that. But apparently uh, the force touch capability of the Apple Watch on a large number of them is uh, having issues. So the taptic feedback where uh, the device basically tapped back at you um, to let you know that you had like a notification or some sort of uh, update had been delivered to the phone. Um, apparently the actual taptic sensor that uh, this company had put out there is faulty in half of the devices. So Kind of interesting to see Apple having to go down the path of potentially do a crap ton of damage control because I know they were selling these things uh, like hotcakes. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if this is going to be one of those things similar to, uh, you know, the Apple iPhone, was it the 4 or the 4S that had the, uh, you know, holding it incorrectly could potentially cause the signal in it to drop tremendously. So uh, to me, this is, you know, Probably, again, you know, hey, it's V1 of a device, and I don't expect it to be perfect, but it's uh, it's unfortunate to see uh, such, you know, something like this uh, pop up when Force Touch and the notification system was one of the bigger things that 
uh, was one of the benefits of wearing this device. Yeah, I, you know, I got more caught up on the article about uh, the skin sensor not being able to read if you had uh, tattoos on your wrists. So I was really thinking about going out and getting a couple of sleeves done just so I would never have to buy an Apple Watch. I could just say, ah, I already got a tattoo, so it's not going to work for me anyway. It's it's a good way to save myself a couple hundred dollars and uh, avoid the technology bug. So what you're telling me is uh, you don't want an Apple Watch. Okay, interesting. Okay, that's cool. Oh, it's 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 not about not want one. It's about not wanting to spend more money on more toys. So uh, I figure tattoos are always a good thing. Uh, you know, having a V1 device that's only going to be around for about a year, eh, that might not be the best thing for me. I'm with you on that. I, you know, I listened to ATP and listened to kind of their breakdown of why why not they bought one, and of course Casey Liss. Uh, had a uh, good old fear of missing out is kind of the main reason that he did. He ended up getting one. So uh, for me, I, I'm definitely steering clear of these for the time being until they can work out more and more of these bugs. Mm, bugs. Yum. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting if anybody follows that stuff. And uh, if you read the radars or, or things like that, that are being submitted, it's, uh, uh, you know, interesting times in the Apple space. And now you've got, uh, I'd, I'd imagine you'll see some other vendors uh, starting to come out with some other things too. So uh, we'll probably see some updates to Android Wear. And then, uh, you know, of course, the hardware that kind of drives all those things. So can't wait to see what the next Samsung Gear or LG Watch or things look like. Well, uh, you know, maybe we'll see the band get some sort of update or a version two this week. Who knows? Uh, the Microsoft band. Yep. That, that, uh, that device that had the name that was just, uh, you know, stellar. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know you said band. We could have been talking about Pearl Jam, but, uh, yeah, that's not here nor there. Uh, they, they did have a new, what was it, software or firmware update or something like that come out for it. Right. Last week, maybe. Yeah, they've got, similar to all the other product groups inside Microsoft, uh, it seems that uh, Satya is asking them to try and do monthly pushes, or at least that's just the way it seems right now. So yeah, they've they've gotten updates that have helped out with battery life and a few other things. So uh, that's them continuing on to that cadence of uh, drum, drum, drum. So. Everybody needs a smarter band. Yep. Um, you know, thinking about uh, some of the other integration points in the Microsoft world, though, uh, I guess Chris Johnson, the guys over in Office 365, probably, what, two months ago at this point, uh, talked about the cloud storage provider's uh, connectivity to Office apps. Um, more interesting, uh, if you follow kind of that Office 365 space, uh, they allowed you inside your OneDrive for Business to have Yammer integrated where you could go in and make comments about a document, uh, you know, using Yammer. So basically stored threads in Yammer somewhere associated with a particular document that allowed you to have more of a social conversation about a document instead of just uh, saving it, uploading it, checking it in, adding comments inside the document, but actually having a conversation about the document. Um, oddly enough, Dropbox seems to have created this capability as well. Um, they pushed it out, I believe, yesterday. So if you're a Dropbox user, uh, you can go out and find all the different uh, comments that have been made about a document. 
sitting out next to the document. It's one of those things that I think is fairly handy. Um, I was surprised that Dropbox didn't have something like this a while ago, but, um, you know, it is what it is. It's uh, kind of V1. It shows up as just text next to the document that you're editing. Uh, could be fairly handy, you know, if you're working on something inside of a business, but also uh, if you're sharing like a folder out with a colleague or a friend from a personal Dropbox, you can have that commenting show up just as well. Oh man, this, this functionality just sounds absolutely wonderful, right? So now I can go comment on all the uh, presentations and files we share for the podcast back and forth, and I can uh, just give you a absolute barrage of emails. We'll, we'll see how this one goes. I, I love it when my mailbox just starts to fill up. I mean, I've already got filtered views on all the different Azure Git, uh, GitHub repos. What's one more? Real-time follow-up. I'm going to be going out to the Dropbox site and making some uh, comments on some files. Oh, joy. Just to see what happens. Nice. Um, so I'll be monitoring my mailbox, but you know, if I'm hoping to monitor my office environment, uh, specifically my office 365 environment, um, you know, they've been adding more and more different capabilities. Last week we talked about some of the different capabilities they were going to be adding, uh, from like an API monitoring perspective to be able to, uh, get more information out from a security perspective. Um, I don't know if you knew, uh, I think his name was, uh, Steve Peshka, um, he was, you know, the man when it came to identity management authentication with uh, SharePoint. Uh, he left Microsoft uh, maybe a month, month and a half ago and has his own startup. Um, I believe it's SamuelMan.com. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but he has a he created a product out there called Office 365 Mon, which is this neat, uh, I believe it's software as a service. Um, that allows you to get some of the monitoring information and whatnot that you probably wish you had been able to see um, about your Office 365 tenant that you uh, may not have seen in the past. Uh, some of the neat things, of course, is because it is uh, more of a service-based thing. There's no hardware and no software that you have to go buy. Uh, it's just there available for you to go plunk down a credit card, uh, purchase order of some sort, and have it go through and monitor to make certain that your system is actually working. So instead of having to go set up, you know, uh, I guess what, System Center Operations Manager to do all this monitoring for you, uh, having to go through and create all the run books and get all the management packs and whatnot, you can just go to office365mon.com um, and have some of that monitoring done for you. So pretty cool. And I really, really hope this is going well for them. Um, I know he's probably uh, one of the guys that uh, I will most most miss on the Microsoft uh, product group for SharePoint and Office 365 just because he knew stuff inside and out. And, you know, if you had questions or comments about how something worked, uh, he had no problem turning around and saying, oh, yeah, um, you know, here's some starter code for building a custom claim provider. Go for it. Um good guy and really i'm hoping this uh, office 365 monitor tool uh takes off he does have you know kind of that uh, like most companies have these days that uh, that freemium model um and then you know they've got premium features and whatnot that you can add on uh if you so you know if you look at it and you say well we want more than just what uh, the basic model will provide for in terms of watching our tenant, watching our email to make certain that it's working. 
So uh, definitely cool stuff. I don't know. Have you actually tried fielding this with any of your clients yet? Service monitoring doesn't come up too much on the Office 365 side. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I think it should be a little bit more important for organizations to, to think about, uh, especially when you can be proactive in uh, going back and, and figuring out your service credits and, and things like that. Because, they're the, you know, you do have a financial SLA, but um, sometimes you've got to be the one to submit the ticket and say, hey, I had an outage on blah, blah, blah. And then Microsoft will usually go back and, and credit you for that. So I, I definitely think this fills a, a nice gap. But it, it's not really a, a niche play. It's something that needs to be there. Uh, it, it'll be interesting over time to see what kind of comes out of it and, and how it extends and what it can do. Um, there's been, a, what, there, there was one other Office 365 monitoring service I had looked at in the past um, with a client. One of the big problems with it was it only monitored something like Exchange. So uh, it's nice to see a little bit of a kind of holistic service monitoring um, and, and being able to get those bits and pieces in place. Um, like you said, uh, this product is a free offering uh, or, or that freemium model. So there's really not too much to get going and get started with it. Uh, you know, when you first go in and, and you just hit the uh, sign in button or, you know, show me the features, it's actually going to ask you to sign into your tenancy and establish uh, that trust relationship. So you're going to be granting it the entitlements it needs uh, to do those bits and pieces that it wants. Um, and then, you know, if you do want more reporting features or things like that, there is a premium feature set on top of it. Very, very cool stuff to see, uh, you know, different people hopping in to provide some of these capabilities though. Uh, Scott, is there, uh, is there anything else in the office 365 world that you've, uh, popped into or bumped into this week? Um, office 365. Let's see. Uh, I think outlook for Android came out of preview. Uh, so that kind of, uh, back to that accompli offering that that's those bits and pieces are starting to grow up a little bit more. Uh, and then we've also heard some rumblings around when, uh, those office updated office bits are going to start coming out for the, like the windows plat phone platform and things like that too. So, uh, not really too much to report there, but it's just nice to know that they are actually working on them. Cause like you said earlier, we've got uh, all these iOS releases and Android releases and everything else. And it seems like Windows phone is left a little bit in the dust. Uh, so hopefully as these things start to come out, it, it can at least keep the uh, Microsoft Technorati uh, nice and happy. I'm, you know, to me, this is just, uh, this is interesting that the Accompli tool was in uh, quote unquote preview for so long. I thought that uh, when they, flipped it over to Outlook that it would be kind of the same footing as uh, the iOS tool, but apparently not. So, oh, well, is what it is, right? Yeah, you know, different groups building different things. Uh, I, I think there's still some uh, friction to, like, every organization getting up and running on Outlook, too, because once you start to dig into it a little bit and you realize that it used to be a Compli, and you realize how some of the searching goes on and things like that and how you're really uh, kind of granting access to that service to store your email someplace else. And that's not necessarily the Office 365 service. So there, there, there could be some kind of security or data leakage concerns there. Um, I think there's another app on iOS that kind of works the same way for exchange providers called Cloud Magic. 
Um, so you know the, the the way they get some of this super fast searching and things like that is by uh, doing some indexing on their own server. So uh, hopefully we see Microsoft pull that in house and kind of clear up that story a little bit, and then it, hopefully that can take off on other platforms too and and give people. Um, you know, those nice warm uh, security fuzzies uh, about being able to adopt some of this stuff. Someday, someday they will all adopt it. Um, I think uh, probably the last thing for today is something that came up, uh, let's see, the 27th. So that was two and a half days ago, depending on how we split the globe. Um, There was an article that a Microsoft, I guess, PFE or someone from the Office deployment team posted uh, for updating Office 365 clients from a network location. Uh, So if you're not familiar, Office 365, there's this thing called the Office deployment tool that allows you to go and set up a localized copy of Office 365 bits, the 365 Pro Plus, so the Office 2013 client, um, set that up locally on your file share for your client uh, computers to actually go hit um, instead of having to go back out to the internet every single time someone says, ooh, install Office 365 Pro Plus um, from the Office 365 portal. Uh, To me, this was not something that really seemed to be all that new. Uh, It just seemed to be an article that they finally put out there so that folks would go, oh, we can do that because it seemed to be one of those articles that uh, was just kind of skipped over by most people. Um, I actually had somebody in my talk at uh, SharePoint Fest DC come up to me and say, you can do that. You can just, you can deploy office locally from your local uh, network through a file share location. I said, yeah, it's been out there for two years almost now. Here's the, uh, the TechNet article, have a good day. And they were, you know, ecstatic about it. So I think what this is more, uh, the addition they made is uh, they added what they call the update path so that you can actually push updates as well um, and not have to have folks just pulling them down uh, through, you know, bits in the background. Uh, so hopefully this is some little extra, you know, piece of functionality that folks can uh, go mess with, so to speak, so that they're not having to go down the path of uh, always getting pushed updates. I know as a As a network administrator, you may not want your users to always be getting the latest and greatest bits. You might want to hold off just a little bit um, so that you can run it through some sort of test configuration to make certain that it doesn't break anything from like application add-ins or office apps or any other, you know, third-party component that you might have created and somehow hacked onto your machine. So uh, it's an article that's out there. To me, it really did just have to make me laugh, though, because the number of folks who were like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they're, uh, you know, putting links out there to the Office deployment tool for click to run for Office 365 as though that it never existed. Um, much in the same way that when somebody stumbles across like the Office 365 service description, they're like, oh, this is the Mona Lisa of Office 365. Go grab it now. Run with it. Uh, this is the best thing ever. And, you know, you and I kind of look at each other and we're like, yeah, we've been talking about this for over two years in our talks. So, um, one of those things, uh, hopefully, you know, it's useful to somebody to be able to go out and understand that they can set an update path, uh, inside of that deployment toolkit. Uh, if they're not familiar with the office deployment toolkit, then hopefully this will, uh, be something that gives them that additional thing they can do, uh, rather than going down the path of, uh, watching their internet pipe melt when 2000 folks go out to, uh, you know, onboard onto Office 365 and pull down the bits to their machine. 
Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing what you can do when you read the manual, right? Well, you know, uh, like you said, this stuff's been out on TechNet for a long time. Uh, it used to be that it wasn't surfaceable and easily findable. Uh, I'm gonna go with there's really not too much of an excuse for uh, the folks who are responsible for deploying these things in organizations not to know this stuff. Uh, because it is readily available in your um, Bing, Google, DuckDuckGo, you know, favorite search engine of choice. Uh, it will usually be the first hit that comes up. Uh, and, you know, I'll be the first to say the content since the kind of 2013 server releases and office releases that's been released on TechNet has been absolutely stellar, right? The stuff that goes up is usually right. It gets regularly improved and updated. Um, it, you know, it, it's not enough, I think, to go out to conferences or kind of troll around on blogs and things like that and ask questions that are really easily answerable uh, if folks put just a slight, little, little, teensy, teeny bit of effort into it. Um, I, I really wish more people would put that effort into it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, uh, there's really no excuse for, for not knowing some of this stuff. So, I mean, in this case, if you if you read through Matt Brink's article from beginning to end, uh, he's not talking about anything new. It's not that they've added anything really to the deployment tool. It's just probably, you know, you mentioned the documentation Stellar. Probably people were just reading past the update path piece. Um, and also probably we're reading past the bit of, oh, yeah, you have to go create this key in GPO and have it pushed out to your machines. Um, yeah, it, it's like you said, no no real excuse for folks to kind of be skipping past this and not know about it. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Uh, you know, it makes me tired to think about it sometimes. But, you know, the good thing is, is they're listening to us and they see this link for this Matt Brink article and they go, oh, that's how you do it. Great. And, you know, they're now on their way to success and hopefully saving themselves some time and money and effort and being rock stars of their organization. Mm. Show notes for the win. IT pro hero, Scott. Uh, you know, I need one of those shirts that'll go with my MVA hero shirt. <laughs> nice. Uh, you want to button this up? Yeah, let's button it up, Dan. Sounds good. <laughs>